the pulpit, that is the thought that lingers on our hearts, that that would not be us, but it would be Christ in us as we come to preach the Word of God, because we know that the Word of God is essential. It's exactly what we need. It is the, uh, the nourishment for our heart and soul. It is the direction that we need to walk. It is an encouragement for us in times of struggle and hardship. And so we love the Word, and we love to preach the Word. And I I pray and trust that you love to receive the word preached. So let's open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. I remember when I was uh, a child hearing an old fable. I think it was my my nana who told it to me, if I'm not mistaken. Once upon a time, as it starts, there was a scorpion. And that scorpion needed to get across the stream. But of course, as you know, scorpions cannot swim. So the scorpion approached a frog. And he made a proposition. He asked if the frog would kindly allow him to climb upon his back, that he might swim him across the stream. And the frog was, was dumbfounded. He said, how, how could you even ask me that? I know what scorpions do. Scorpions sting frogs and eat frogs. But the scorpion reasoned with the frog and said, no, listen, I know that's how it normally works, but I need your help. And if I sting you in the middle of the stream, what's going to happen? You're going to sink and we're both going to die. So... There's no worry here. Everything's going to be working out okay. The frog thought about it for a minute. It made some sense to him, so he agreed somewhat reluctantly. The scorpion climbs onto his back, and the frog begins to swim across the stream. Midway across, the frog feels a sharp pain in his back. His limbs begin to grow numb, and the paralysis begins to sink in. And as the two begin to sink, the frog cries out with desperation, What have you done? Why would you sting me knowing that it would hurt both you and me? To which his passenger replied, Because, Mr. Frog, I am a scorpion. That is what a scorpion does. The idea is a pretty simple one to grasp. A scorpion is a violent creature who has the nature of a predator. And we should not be surprised when a creature does what it is completely in that creature's nature to do. Now, I think my Nana told me this story because because she wanted me to stop hanging out with a certain little boy that was giving me in trouble in the first grade over and over again. I wouldn't call him a scorpion, but, you know, the principle might still apply a little. This, This story, though, also might help us to think about the fact that the scorpion isn't the only creature with a natural tendency to do what is bad. There's a similar phrase that pops up from time to time that makes us think about our own human nature. When someone makes a mistake or sins against you, or lets you down, they may say to you, well, I am only human. I can't help but make a mistake sometimes. I'm only human. It's my nature. That's a far more theological statement than most people give it credit for, isn't it? In saying I am only human, essentially what I'm confessing is that I am not perfect. More accurately, I am a sinner. And it is my nature to do what is in my own self-interest, even if that comes at the expense of another. Romans 5.12 reveals this to us. Having descended from Adam, the first sinner, every human being has inherited his flawed nature. Every man, woman, and child on earth has to contend with his own faults every day as he battles with sin. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin so that death spread to all men because all sinned. I am only human means that I can't expect myself to be more than that. 
And that's true. It's unrealistic to expect myself to be able to accomplish what is completely beyond my natural ability to do until I encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ, until the work of Jesus has a transforming effect on my heart. You see, if I'm a Christian, then that seemingly universal excuse doesn't really fly anymore. Think about it. You used to be only human. But the Apostle Paul has shown us through the first two chapters of this amazing letter that once you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, once the Holy Spirit has regenerated you and made you new, then you're no longer just human. You're still human, but now you are indwelt by the powerful Spirit of God. The sinful nature that was insurmountable in you has been displaced by the power of God that does not have does, does not keep you a slave to sin, but rather sets you free. You can be more than merely human now. A believer has been given the spiritual wisdom, discernment, judgment, and maturity to walk in the Spirit of Christ rather than in the pattern of men. Those who are in Christ can no longer find comfort in this phrase, I am only human because Jesus has made us more than that. And Paul believes the Corinthians are believers. He trusts that they have truly put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. But these Corinthian brothers and sisters, Paul is acutely aware of, have been acting like mere humans. It's my pastoral hope that as we study this important New Testament letter that we are each coming to the realization that by God's grace we are now more than human if we call ourselves followers of Christ. We are more than what we used to be. In Jesus, the Son of God, our existence has undergone a fundamental transformation. And I'm not just talking about how we have a new potential now. Our actual identity is now different in Christ. Friends, it would be a tragedy if we simply resigned ourselves to living like lost people. What a tragedy if we would examine our lives and instead of seeking how to love like Christ loves, instead of trying to be wise with the wisdom that comes from above, instead of serving with the sacrificial love and care of our Savior, that we would simply buy into the idea that is so common in this world that I'm only human and just resign ourselves to living like the rest of the lost world around us. What a tragedy that would be. The Corinthians had put themselves in that exact bind. They were redeemed believers walking around with the Holy Spirit in them, and yet their actions were more secular than sacred. They were behaving as if they were only human. One of the most obvious ways that shows itself in the life and activity of the, Christian, or the Corinthian church happened to be in the divisions that Paul drew attention to for us in the first chapter of this letter. I'm going to go back it up to, to verse 4 as we read chapter 3, and then we're going to bounce back to chapter 1 after I pray, and we're going to look at some of the historical context of what's going on here. So, verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not me being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants 
nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Let's stop for a word of prayer before we continue. Lord, this word is bread to our souls. Let us, as Jesus preached about in the Sermon on the Mount, let us hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Let us not come into this place so proud and arrogant as to think that we've got it all figured out and that our lives are a model of pristine Christian obedience to Christ. Help us, God, to be meek and teachable today, Father. I pray that we would feast upon your word and that which is lacking in us would be filled up by its wisdom and truth. I do pray, Lord God, that by your word we can begin to love you more and more, that we would not just learn these things so that our behavior might be modified, but rather that our hearts might reflect who we are in Christ and that our actions might be an outflowing of that heart. And so, Father, may you be glorified and may we grow through this time in your word together. And we pray this all in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. See, the foundation of this conflict um, that we're seeing in the Corinthian church, Paul will now return to, was laid for us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So I do want to read a little bit from chapter 1 so that we, we remember afresh what we learned a few weeks back. Starting in verse 10, the Apostle Paul had written to the Corinthian church, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by closed people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Peter, or I follow Christ. In addressing this issue, Paul wants the church at Corinth to become unified. And why does he want that? He wants that because God wants us to be unified. The most tense days in the Neves household are when the members of our family are fighting against one another. God doesn't want that for his family. He wants his family to love one another and to agree with one another in a holy unity. And so the people of Corinth were seeing their unity jeopardized because they were divided according to their favorite teachers. And this is called sectarianism. Sectarianism means an excessive attachment to a particular sect or party, especially in religious context. And so you might think of sections. It's as if the church was being cut into sections, and those sections were struggling to mingle with one another. They were looking down on one another. They were competing like rivals against one another. And if you're acting that way, then unity cannot be experienced. How much of a problem is sectarianism in God's church today? I would argue that it's just as much a problem as it's ever been. You know, the proliferation of online preaching, of television preaching that our sheep are being exposed to mean that many Christians today are being fed not just only by their shepherd, but by shepherds around the world. And in some agree, that's a wonderful blessing. I hope that we're not the only people that you're hearing good preaching from. I hope that you're listening to faithful men throughout the world who've been called to this task and gifted to it. But it does make a difference in the way that people look at their faith and their allegiances in the church. There 
are conferences that people can go to today. There are archived preaching from preachers long gone past to be with the Lord. There are blog posts and podcasts to listen to. And so now with COVID, we've also got this huge shift towards online virtual church instead of church in person. So of course, that makes it much easier for someone to think, well, I think I'm just going to listen to a different preacher today. I'm going to, I'm going to be shepherded by somebody who is more gifted in the pulpit. I'm going to be shepherded by somebody who I can relate to a little bit more, who's more like me. The advent of social media has amplified the desire of people to be somehow connected to someone who is known and popular. I think Twitter is probably the most rampant case of this, where you can subscribe to somebody on Twitter who's famous, and then you can see their thoughts unroll as they post what they're thinking about or what they're they're mulling over in their lives. You can watch as people feud with each other, and you can feel almost like you get to pick a side and be on one celebrity's side or team or the other. Many people identify themselves more readily now with a famous preacher than they do with their own church, with their own elders that, that they have been given by the Lord. And ironically, those high-profile preachers, those preachers that broadcast the Word of God over the air, they're doing a faithful work, but they don't really know the people that are downloading those broadcasts and listening to them. So they don't understand what you're going through. They only... They, they don't have a, a concept of how the word might particularly impact you. And you only see a fraction of who they are. You don't know really what kind of a person that minister is unless you're around them regularly, unless you serve by their side, unless you're involved in the ministries that they are involved in. The lack of true relationship undermines the abilities of these long-distance shepherds to be what people really need a shepherd to be. And so in the church today, we see people who think they are a disciple of a certain pastor that they've never even met, that they most closely identify with a stranger rather than being a part of God's work in the very place where they have been called to live. Now, the common attitude from those who are choosing not to be involved in a local church but have their favorite preachers that they listen to or pastors that they might follow on the, on the, online might be this. You know, I don't need a local shepherd. I can get what I need from this man online. I can listen to his preaching and read his books and then I can apply it myself. The problem with that is that God disagrees with you. And God makes it abundantly clear in his scripture that he has designed the church to be a home, a family, for people to be connected to. He designed an interdependency between shepherd and sheep that we should all be looking out for each other, caring for each other, and loving each other in real, not virtual ways. So when God struck a covenant, he didn't just make a personal covenant with you. He made a covenant with a people. He made a covenant with a body of believers to be set apart for his glory, not individualistically, but together. So the situation in Corinth was in some ways surprisingly similar to today's. These well-known leaders weren't necessarily there in Corinth but their views and teachings had become well-known to the Corinthians. The leaders mentioned were all preaching the same gospel. In fact, Paul and Peter and Apollos and Jesus, these were not men at odds at each other. They didn't desire this kind of fractured family life within the church. But each did preach the gospel in their own style, with their own emphasis. And certain doctrines were undoubtedly more strongly represented by one leader than they were another. And so people found themselves picking a favorite. 
and then coming up underneath that favorite in doctrine and ideology, the people of that church had so strongly unified and identified with one leader over the other that they were leaning heavily toward a certain leader's strengths, and enough so that they were treating the Christians who identified with a different leader as below them. So there's a sin to be confessed here by the Corinthians. Whether it is favoritism between different shepherds that you have on staff at your own church or picking and choosing a high-profile leader to identify with, both represent a thinly failed form of idolatry that sabotages the way a shepherd and sheep are supposed to interact. Identifying with a particular preacher or pastor might not seem idolatrous at first. That might seem like a strange word to use to identify this error in the Corinthians. But idolatry hides quite nicely in this error because it looks pious. It looks noble on the surface. Having a Christian hero is better than having an obsession with some secular celebrity, right? So it seems almost like a good thing to say, well, my guy is this guy. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to do all the things that he says. But as Christians, there is undeniably only room for one Lord, for one standard, for one Savior. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father, isn't he? When we find our greatest connection with a person, it is probably because we see something of ourself in that person. We see something in them that we haven't been able to accomplish yet, but we aspire to. And so we grab onto that person because in them, we're sensing a, a kind of win for ourselves. And so ultimately, when we are admiring someone else like that, we're not just admiring another believer, we're admiring ourselves in that other believer. We are creating the very class categories of this kind of Christian is better than this kind of Christian that the Apostle Paul has so adamantly been fighting against here in the first two chapters. And of course, we're always counting ourselves as part of whatever class of Christians seems higher. And so Paul's got to face this error and explain its faults to his friends there in Corinth or risk division in the church. The Corinthians were thinking more highly of their favorite teachers than they should, and so he returns their attention to this phenomenon that they had become known for. Now, you might ask yourself, why are Apollos and Paul the only two mentioned here in the third chapter, when in the first chapter there were four names mentioned? I don't think we should read too much in this, but perhaps the followers of Peter were not as much of a problem. We don't really have any record of Peter visiting Corinth, so perhaps he had not bonded as closely with many of the people in that congregation. No doubt many had heard of his teachings. Perhaps his letters had circulated there, and they had gained from his wisdom and knowledge. So there was probably a small group that identified with Peter, maybe those who had a Hebrew heritage to begin with before they trusted in Jesus Christ. But there's a probability here that the reason why Apollos and Paul are set up as the two examples mentioned in chapter 3 is because those, both these men spent a lot of time in Corinth. Paul was there at its beginning, and then after Paul left for Ephesus, he met a man named Apollos who had been greatly encouraged by Aquila and Priscilla, and eventually Apollos desired to go back to Achaia, which is the region where Corinth lies. And so we have no doubt that Apollos spent time in Corinth and probably established some firm relationships with the people there. So verse 5 asks, What is Apollos? And what is Paul? Some translations actually render this question, Who is Apollos? 
who is Paul, but our oldest Greek copies of these verses have it as it shows up in the ESV. What is Apollos and what is Paul? That becomes a little strange to our ears as we hear it because these are people and not things, but it's there for a reason, I believe. Paul wants us to focus on the station of the work and position of these men, their calling, and the task to which they are called forth by God. What is Paul? What is Apollos? These men are conduits through which God does ministry. Paul describes himself and Apollos here as servants. Servants through whom the Corinthians believed. These men are vessels for God's glory. Through them God works His will, and in doing so He exalts not them, but Himself. To train our attention and allegiance on a mere human is the classic mistake of a mere human. Because the work that they are doing rightfully begins with and depends upon the Holy Spirit filling them in such a way that these men are doing what God has called them to do. I want you to look at the details of the language. Paul does not describe them as servants in whom you believed, but rather servants by whom you believed. Paul and Apollos did not save the Corinthians. They did not mature the Corinthians. No, through these two men and others, God was in the process of maturing the Corinthian church. These two men didn't even come up with the wonderful material that opens your eyes to God's truth. They were simply used by the Holy Spirit to communicate that wisdom that comes from God Himself. And each of these men as servants of the living God were simply fulfilling the task as the Lord assigned to each. God saw the Corinthians in the depth of their lostness and determined to shine light upon them. He could have chose anyone for that task, but it just so happens that He chose Apollos, that He chose Paul, that he chose other men to come in and to lead that church faithfully. Now, you've probably driven the river road if you've lived around here for a while. If you drive out towards towards Stockton, you'll see another example of it. You see farms all around, right? Great fields filled with sunflowers, filled with uh, sod and grass that we put in our lawns. All kinds of crops are grown out in that area. And why is that the case? Part of the reason we have so many farms around here is because of the proximity to the water. You might have also taken note of the intricate levees and canals that are carved into the land around here to try to channel that water from the sloughs of the delta into the fields where we grow these crops. Now, what does the field actually need? Does the field need a canal to grow? Does the field need a levee and a slough? No, what the field actually needs is the water. The canal and the levee and the channels are simply means by which that water is brought to them. The channel itself doesn't make the crop grow. The water that runs through it makes the crop grow. In the same sense here, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, Apollos, Apostle Peter, these are men through whom God works and does His great will, through whom God applies the doctrine to the church. So when Paul clarifies that it was through Paul and Apollos that these Corinthians believed, he's pointing out that they were merely conduits, channels through which the people would get what they really needed from God, closeness to the Lord, intimacy with God through His Word. And that is the essential meaning behind the metaphor Paul chooses to use here in describing God's church as the people in in Corinth. 
Now, the church is a grand and a complex organism. The scripture supplies us with several metaphors that can improve our understanding of what the church is and how it functions. Through different, different various places in the New Testament, we hear that the church is like a family, which speaks to the close connections we develop with one another, with the great affection and love that we have for one another. The church is described as a body, which shows us how we need as believers to be connected to each other and depending upon one another, for each of us has a different task to do and to complete in the kingdom. The church is called a flock, which humbles us and reminds us that we are not capable of leading, leading ourselves apart from the guidance and direction of the Good Shepherd. The church is called an army, which reminds us that we are not gathered together simply for our comfort and blessing, but also to be on mission for the Lord, that we have a task at hand and that we are under opposition by the forces of darkness. The Apostle Paul will detail two more metaphors for the church here in chapter 3. The church as God's field is what we will look at this week. It's a farming illustration. And the church as a temple we will examine next week. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. There are several reasons this is a fitting analogy. Farming is not particularly skilled labor being mentioned. It is hard work. It is done in the sun. Farming is sometimes monotonous. It requires many willing hands. And so there's a humbling feel to the imagery that Paul chooses to use here in describing the church in Corinth. But the goal of any farm is what? It is extremely noble. The the goal of any farm is life. The goal of any farming is the multiplication of life, the sustenance of life, the provision that man needs to sustain life. There are more glamorous fields to be involved in, but if there was no food, how would we live? And so God is helping us to put our goal on the farm as life and production. God originally commanded Adam and Eve in the Garden Covenant to go forth and to multiply and to fill the earth. Jesus had referred to those who would hear the gospel and believe as a harvest of souls into which he must send many workers, right? And so in order for any farm to become productive, there are a wide variety of tasks and responsibilities that together must be completed. And here two duties are mentioned, although we could imagine there were many more who shared in the responsibilities. First of all, we hear that the Apostle Paul planted the seed. This should remind us of the parable of the sower that Jesus shared with us. And Paul is going to borrow from this imagery. It's kind of comforting to me to see the Apostle Paul borrowing from imagery that Jesus gave. Uh, As a, a, a writer of sermons, as a preacher, I am reminded every week that a good pastor has to, in some ways, be a thief of information. We steal from other sources because nothing that I preach to you, I hope, is original in me. Everything that I have to give to you is from the Word of God. Everything that is good that I could share with you doesn't come from a man, but comes from God above. And so other men who are preaching amazing things in the pulpit are simply preaching the amazing things of God. And so those resources don't ever properly belong to the pastor. 
They belong to God Himself. And so we all just borrow material from one another. We all are constantly going back to the same resource, to the Word of God, where we mine the Scriptures for truth that we bring to you in the pulpit. So Paul's drawing upon Jesus' parable here. He borrows from the imagery that Christ initiated in His earthly ministry. And here's a summary of what that parable is about. The gospel is like a seed. And the hearts of men are like soils. And that seed of the gospel is spread to various parts of the world and it falls upon the soils of the hearts of men. And Jesus takes the time to line out four different kinds of soils. He talks about how there's a a very hard soil where the seed falls and the, the sun scorches it and perhaps a bird comes and picks it up and takes it away before it ever grows at all. There's a second kind of soil where there's a little bit of topsoil, but it's very rocky and tough. And that seedling begins to sprout up, but it can't grow roots down deep enough to become sustainable and hardy. And eventually it too withers and dies. A third type of seed is described as a seed that falls upon decent soil, but it's soil that is crowded by the thistles and thorns of vines and branches and weeds. And those thistles and thorns rob the nutrients from the soil and block out the sun from the seed so that though it grows a little at first, it never reaches maturity and it never bears real fruit. But there's a fourth soil mentioned by Christ and that is the soft soil of the heart that Christ has made ready to receive the gospel work. That heart is eager to be what God wants it to be because it has been regenerated by the Lord. So this is the imagery that that I believe Paul's drawing from here as he speaks about the church as the field of God. As individuals tasked in spreading the seed, Paul would represent the evangelist. He would represent the one who would go out and share the gospel, the good news, with those who needed to hear it. He's spreading the seed on all kinds of hearts, all kinds of soils, and preaching the gospel so that in in faith, some will begin to grow and, and develop roots. Through his diligence, he shared the gospel there in Corinth. In fact, he was the missionary who first sought out to start a church in in Corinth. He left Athens with the intention of coming to this untapped place and showing the truth of Jesus Christ first to his brothers, his Hebrew brothers and sisters, and then to the Gentiles in the marketplace, and that's exactly what he did. And so as a side note, we we could take encouragement by this, knowing that the seed of the gospel needs to be spread. People like us who have this truth are to be sharing this truth with the people around us. We're to be considering the people that God has put into our lives that we might try to reach them with the gospel of Jesus, that they might become awake with the truth that only God can provide. And of course, there's much more to farming, though, than just simply throwing a bunch of seeds in the field. That's kind of how I plant a garden. I just throw the seeds out there, and then I forget what I did, and everything dies. That's not how... I do ministry, thank the Lord, but that's how I try to grow corn and melons and things like that. There's much more to farming, isn't there? And so Apollos is described as the one who watered the seed. So there's different stages of work that's being done here. The seed being planted by the pioneering work of Paul, Apollos followed up with that ministry that supported the viability and growth of that seed. It would appear from the book of Acts as we look at the the missionary record of the early church, that Apollos and Paul never served together at Corinth, that Apollos came after Paul had already left to begin a new ministry in Ephesus. But they both were ministering to the same peoples and they were ministering with the same hope that by nurturing these young seedlings that they might see these plants grow to a maturity 
develop roots, and bear fruit for the glory of Christ the King. Now, Apollos, having met with Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus, he had his understanding of the gospel enriched, and he had a desire to go and help the people in Corinth, and so that's where he went. He was a particularly gifted preacher, we discover from Acts, and people were very quick and uh, quickly receptive to that. In other apostles, Peter confesses that he is mightier with his writing than with his preaching. He's not mincing words. He knows that his preaching is not as mighty as some other people who are very forceful of word, that his strength often comes from his pen instead of his voice. And so we start to have an idea of how people might have chose sides here, how some might prefer the mighty preaching of Apollos and others might prefer the great writing of Paul. It might be an overreach to try to assign a specific class of work to what Apollos did. It's very likely he took time to work on apologetics to help <clears throat> approach the Gentile thinking of these young believers, many of whom did not come from a Jewish background. He may have stirred the hearts of the people and encouraged a response from them. He may have displayed the beauty of the cross in such a way as to draw people to the glory of the Lord and to make them more passionate about serving Him with their lives. But the idea being portrayed is this, that no matter what work Apollos did, however similar or unique it was to Paul's work, on its own, it was not sufficient to cause the plant to grow. He who plants and he who waters are one, says verse 8. So Paul and Apollos, along with every other minister of the gospel, they are of equal value. God is using them for holy ends. We have no need to rank them or to choose a favorite. To give way to the working of God, which is in every way greater than our own, is the calling of somebody who serves as an apostle or as an elder. Our contributions are equally inconsequential when compared to the real work that must be done in order for spiritual life to come forth. And that life, or that work of life, the quickening of the Spirit can only be done by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit Himself. No one else is capable of creating life. The mightiest preacher with the most winsome words could preach his very soul out and if the Holy Spirit is not working in that place, people will stare back blankly, having not been changed having not been moved. It's a very humbling reality that it is only the Spirit of God that can do what ultimately needs to be done if a field is worth anything at all. The Corinthians were holding a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. The church is not built by the efforts of man. It is built by the sovereign direction and will of God. I fittingly got to teach my Tuesday night Bible study this past week on the humbling story of King Nebuchadnezzar and his brief demise. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king over the Babylonian Empire at a time when the nation of Judah had been very, very disobedient to the Lord God. Their faithfulness was extremely weak. God had warned them again and again and again through prophets that they needed to repent, that Israel needed to repent and once again follow the scripture that had defined the covenant that God made with them, and yet they were ignorant and did not listen. And so God, after prophesying what he would do through the prophet Jeremiah, brought upon the people of Judah a great punishment. 
This punishment was designed to chastise those who were really gods and turn their hearts back to him. And so this nation of Babylon rose up in power and strength and with God's permission went into Judah and took the Holy Land as their own possession and put the people of Israel under their control. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. He was not a godly man. He worshipped a god named Marduk and several other gods that existed in the eyes of the Babylonians. He was a man of war. He was a violent man. And yet God allowed this man to work his will in Israel so that Israel might learn from this defeat, might be humbled, and might return again to, to the Lord God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, though he was shown favor by God, though that was the only reason he was able to defeat Judah, like the scorpion, could only do what a man could do. He praised himself for his accomplishments. He boasted in his own strength and in the strength of his empire. And God sent a warning to him through the course of a dream. Nebuchadnezzar was warned that if he did not repent of his arrogance, to repent of his pride, that he would be humbled and brought low, and that he would, he would experience in a very real way what it means to be low, below the authority and majesty of God himself. Unfortunately, he does not respond well to that dream, though Daniel the prophet interprets it and warns him, for only one year does he remain humble, and after that year he looks upon his whole, his whole empire, he sees how great it is, how vast its expansion, and he says in his heart, Look at all that I have done by the work of my hand. What a great and mighty people I have built. And instantly that same day, Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and brought low. Scriptures tell us that he experienced something that was probably akin to something that's a real medical condition called uh, lycanthropy. He began to believe that he was an animal. He became mentally ill to such an extent that he acted like a beast in the fields. He ate the grass of, 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 the, of the open lawns. He, he, he slept outside at night so that the dew of the, the morning would rest upon him in the morning. His hair grew long and his nails grew thick. And he acted as if he was a beast. For seven years, this man was humbled because he had boasted over what the Lord alone could accomplish. He had missed this important fact that even if we do good, God alone deserves the glory and the credit for that. If you want to read in Daniel chapter 4, you can see how the Lord God woke him up from that insanity and taught an important lesson not only to him, but to his people through the decree he made afterwards. But what we need to see here this morning is that the growth of God's church is not at all dependent upon men. Even if we involve ourselves with the machinations uh, that the human mind believes makes the harvest come to pass. That is why there may be times when we may be underneath an earthly leader. And if that earthly leader grows arrogant or proud, if that earthly leader begins to teach what is not in the Word of God, then we must, in love, try to oppose that. We must go to them humbly and urge them to return to the Scripture. But if that pastor is not teaching you the truth, if Christ is not the one exalted in the pulpit, but rather the pastor is, then at a certain point you have to break fellowship with this pastor and move away from that and, and join a new fellowship because our salvation is not in the man in the pulpit. It's in the Christ that man preaches. God in no way needs the contribution of his people to accomplish what only he can do. 
Verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God's servants contribute nothing of eternal value insofar as it concerns the actual bringing about of life. And this is a blunt charge, isn't it? But it's not meant to cause us to think down upon our leaders. We don't want to get the wrong idea about that. We are exhorted in other areas of God's word to be careful not to think little of those who would serve the Lord God as they are called. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there should be an honor given to those who diligently seek to honor God by preaching His Word and by helping people to grow in discipleship. In Acts chapter 20, we get a picture of, of a proper relationship between a church and its elders. The Apostle Paul has been in Ephesus for quite some time, but the Spirit is leading him out away, and so he gathers the elders together, this group of men that have helped him in leading the church, and he lets them know that he's about to leave, that God is calling him somewhere else. There isn't a worship of Paul. They know he must go. They are resigned to that fact, but look at how they react in verse 36. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So there is an affection for their leaders there. They respect what God has done through this man. They're grateful for the, the joy that he has brought to them. But they are also not tied to Paul. They will continue to be a church even though he has gone somewhere else. In Hebrews 3.17 it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have, an, have to give an account. And so let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So we're to appreciate what God does through his workers, whether that be the one who scatters the seed or the one who waters, whether it be the one who breaks up the soil, the one who removes the rocks, whether it be the one who harvests the field or the one who, who, who keeps it free from predators and weeds. Anybody who's serving the Lord should, should receive honor and, and, and gratefulness from our hearts. He's hoping... Not that we would reject our leaders, but that we would view them properly under the care of the one true shepherd who rules all things. We strive to minister well. Our failure does not hold up the sovereign coming of God's kingdom. So let us put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in men. So honor those who God appoints to you, church, but never in a way that threatens the preeminence of Jesus Christ. That word preeminence means that Christ is first in all things. It is a position of honor that Christ receives that no one else deserves. He must remain our first and only boast in all things. It is a beautiful thing that though we are unnecessary to God's work, that He chooses to use us as part of His mission, that He brings us along in that glory. That is good to contemplate. It is very useful for us to, useful for us to meditate on this wonderful inclusion, but it is not the main point of Paul's analogy. The primary aim of the analogy is not to humble the leaders. Remember, we have no indication that this problem of division is supported or encouraged by the pastors mentioned who are being idolized. The Corinthians revered and identified with their teachers. Paul wants to replace that reverence and identification with God himself. Again, the context of this parable. Oh, Corinthians, you've been made something more than man. God has put his Holy Spirit in your hearts and you have every reason and resource now to live in a way that is a reflection of God in whose image you were originally made. 
But sadly, that is not how you are choosing to live. You are living as if you are merely humans. You are acting like the lost world still. How silly does it sound to choose your favorite watering gardener, to align with him, to look down on others who associate with the planting gardener or workers who break up the hard soil. That's a different camp. No, my guy is the watering gardener. I'm, I'm going after his example. He's the one I want to be like. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? If we cry out, that's my guy, that's my pastor, that's my minister that I love and that I allege to, so what? So what if that's your guy? These guys are blessed to play a role and be associated with the good work that God empowers, that God makes come to pass. But there is only one who rightfully should be praised, and that is the God who supernaturally brings the growth. Science tells us so much about the multiplication of life, and farming has become quite a technical business. But as much as they can figure out cycles of life, as much as they can figure out what soils work best and what pesticides to use, still a scientist cannot tell you why life springs forth and why living things thrive and grow. Do not settle for allegiance and loyalty to any created thing because God is the only one who knows why life grows and he's the only one that can wake us up to greater life. To gain your identity from any man or woman apart from Christ is to find more satisfaction and security in a man as mortal as yourself on a flawed and a fallen individual who's only able to grasp the truth at all because he has been given the mind of Christ. And so Paul closes the analogy with the following reminder. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Who am I? The question on the minds and hearts of so many men wandering around in this world today. Who am I? The question that hangs over the heads of those who fill our universities, trying to discover their direction in life, trying to discover what truth is, what they can grab hold of, what they can be. Who am I? But there are, is a far more important question that we all should be asking, and that is, whose am I? To whom do I belong? Paul makes it very clear in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Christian, are you MacArthur's? Are you Feldick's? Are you Stuckey's? Are you Vody's? Are you mine or Paul's or Sean's or Ross's? No, you are Christ's. You belong to Jesus. He is your Lord and Savior. He is your king. The workers that he has provided for you are a blessing, but they are not your aim or goal. You are the field through which he himself is planting good fruit or bringing up good fruit. And so rejoice at what he has made you to be. If your faith is in Jesus, then you are a believer and you don't belong to any man. You belong to God. So friends, do not allow your allegiance to any man to press God into a vice president role in your life. Keep him preeminent on the throne. Don't allow your preferences to create artificial barriers between you and your brothers who may think a little differently than you or listen to different preachers than you listen to. Don't let the enemy make you an idolater, one who worships himself in the image of another created being that you seem to identify with who reflects your ideas and your preferences. Instead, let Christ be first in all things. To him alone be all the wisdom, the glory, the power, and the honor.
Let's pray together. God, you are magnificent, and so we worship you today. We worship you with our attention. We worship you by taking these things to heart. We worship you not by considering that this is something that somebody else might need to think about, but by considering that this might be something we ourselves need to think about, that we too, like the Corinthians, are prone to the same things that the human heart is prone to. I pray, Father, that you would overcome those patterns and those tendencies in us with the power of your Holy Spirit. And I trust that as we do these things, then the result will be a greater joy. The more we put you first, the less we rely on lesser things. The less we are disappointed in the failures and and shortcomings of men. The more Christ is first, the more we are in his joy and rest. And so we praise you, God, for all that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.